The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Last week we looked at the most famous story in the life of David, which was this battle, this epic battle between David and Goliath. Uh, Everyone in the Israelite camp, including the king himself, Saul, frozen in fear because of the sheer terror that uh, was engendered by this giant Goliath. Uh, But David would courageously step up, uh, willing to fight on behalf of everyone else. And in this way, uh, I said last week that David became Israel's champion. And I realized after preaching that message that I probably should have clarified something in calling David Israel as champion because I, I think in modern English, when we use the word champion, we most often associate it with basically somebody who comes out on top as the first place winner in a competition. That's why when we look at a tournament, we say that they're playing in the championship round, right? Because it's whoever wins that becomes the champion. But when I say that David was Israel's champion, um, that's not actually the way we're using the word champion. Because another definition of champion is someone who fights on behalf of someone else. And in Hebrew, when you look at the actual Hebrew Bible, that word champion literally translates to one who stands in between, the man who stands in between. In other words, David alone was willing to stand between the Israelites and Goliath to represent the entire nation, in fact, of Israel on that field of battle. And so in this way, as I pointed out last week, the story of David was pointing ahead to Jesus, who would also become our champion. In other words, what the Gospels tell us in the New Testament is that Jesus represented us on the cross, dying the death that we should have died because of our sin, and out of that death, bringing us peace with God. In our helpless state, Jesus fought our battle so that his victory would become our own. And so, as I brought out in that sermon last week, in that way, many of the elements of the David story will show us what Jesus did for us. In other words, as a king of Israel, David pictures for us the way that Jesus is our king. One of the things I didn't really get into, though, in last week's message that I I feel like is a little bit unfinished business in the David and Goliath story is what I want to cover at the start of this message before we look at the friendship of Jonathan and David. But there are are other levels at which these stories in the Bible can operate in the Old Testament. David was not only a king and pictures Jesus, but he was also a human like us. And so he also represents us as well in that story. In other words, when we look at it from that dimension, what we can say is this, is in rising up to fight Goliath, David shows us what a life of faith looks like. Trusting God to help us in our time of need. That's another way that David helps us when we study his life. Is he shows us what is it that God desires from us. David himself would testify to this key role that his faith would play in giving him the courage to accept Goliath's challenge. This is a passage we didn't actually look at last week, but I want to read it right now. 1 Samuel 17, verse 31 to 37, it says, When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. 
And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. You see, David shows us that for our faith to grow, we need to personally seek the experiencing of God's power in our own lives. It's interesting, David was the one guy on the battlefield that day who had no war experience at all. He was not battle-tested. He had never fought in a war, but he had more courage than any of the soldiers that were there. Why? Because he had firsthand witnessed the power of God at work in his life when he was a shepherd tending sheep. Saul thinks that the best way he could help David out is to clothe him in his own armor. So David is walking in this heavy armor, and he finally says, I can't go into battle like this. And the reason that David gives is he says, I'm not used to this stuff. I've never fought like this. And so he sheds that armor. But what David was familiar with was the presence of God at work in his time of need. And so he says, that presence of God is all I'm going to need because that's what I'm familiar with. That's what I personally have experienced in my life as a shepherd. And so that's what I will use to face Goliath is my faith in a God who has been faithful to me all these years. Eugene Peterson says this, To have gone to meet Goliath wearing Saul's armor would have been disaster. Borrowed armor always is. David needed what was authentic to him. Israel had a glorious history. Abraham and Moses, Joshua and Samuel. But history, no matter how glorious, doesn't save anyone. And this is the line that I love the most. Every person learns the way of faith freshly or not at all. Every person must learn the way of faith freshly or not at all. In other words, I think what Peterson is saying is there's really no such thing as secondhand faith. It doesn't exist. You cannot be given a faith by somebody else's story ultimately right? And I I wonder how many of us are living out our lives with borrowed faith. And I think the truth is you can hear all kinds of inspiring stories of what God has done in someone else's life. But for, I really, and, and, and maybe at some level that can help you in your own relationship with God and in your own challenges you're facing. But ultimately, I would say what the story of David and Goliath shows for us is that ultimately that faith has to be experienced firsthand as we walk with God and experience answered prayers and him working in us. Well, I want to move on now from that David and Goliath story to what happens right after it highlighted by this friendship between Jonathan and David. And I want to begin it by talking about another friendship. Two of the greatest Christian writers of the last century were C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And they met for the first time in 1926 at a faculty meeting in Oxford University. Lewis had just started teaching that year, while Tolkien, who was a bit older than him, uh, was already the chair of his department at Oxford. And in his diary that night, after meeting Tolkien, uh, what Lewis would write in his journal was this singular line, no harm in him, only needs a smack or two. (laughs) Um, And that comment that Lewis wrote in his journal Um, revealed the tension that would exist throughout the length of their relationship with one another because they were very different people. Um, Tolkien was a consummate perfectionist who obsessed over his work, whereas Lewis was cranking out books left and right. (laughs) He wrote all seven books of the Narnia Chronicle series in seven years, publishing one book every year. And 
Tolkien lost a lot of respect for Lewis because of that. And their personalities couldn't have been more different, as well as their view on everything from literature to philosophy to theology. And yet, despite those differences, they formed a powerful bond of friendship that would last for four decades. In fact, it was through Tolkien that Lewis became a Christian because when they first met, Lewis was an avowed materialist who didn't believe in the existence of a spiritual world. But through his persistent witness into Lewis's life, finally in 1931, Lewis became a believer. But it's not only Lewis who owed a great debt to Tolkien. Tolkien, in his own writings, confessed a deep debt of gratitude that he also owed to Lewis. Because in his perfectionism, Tolkien realized that he was too insecure to ever publish any of the books that he had spent so many years writing. And he realized that he would go to the grave with the Lord of the Rings unpublished. But Lewis would read his early drafts and say, this is gold. (laughs) You have to publish this. For years, Tolkien's children and Lewis were the only ones that were given permission to read The Hobbit. And Lewis would say, what are you doing, man? (laughs) you got to publish this book so that the world can read this. It's not an exaggeration to say without their friendship, some of the most influential books of the last century would never have been written. Like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Hobbit, The Narnia Chronicles, Mere Christianity, just to name a few of them. In other words, Lewis would not be Lewis without Tolkien. And Tolkien could not have been Tolkien without Lewis. The friendship was absolutely vital to the people that they would become. It's interesting that despite all of their differences, one place at which they united was the belief that stories were some of the most powerful ways to communicate truth to people. It's interesting that before they began to publish some of their fantasy novels, that whole genre of fantasy was pretty much exclusively in the realm of children. Fairy tales for little kids. These are not adult books. But what both Lewis and Tolkien realized is that these could be incredibly powerful vehicles to communicate truth even to adults. Lewis, when he was asked why he writes children's books, responded like this. I thought I saw how stories of this kind could steal past a certain inhibition, which has paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told one ought to feel about God? Or the sufferings of Christ. I thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to. An obligation to feel can freeze feelings. But supposing that by casting all these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make them for the first time appear in their real potency. Could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons? I thought one could. And it's fascinating, isn't it, to see how much the world has embraced the Lord of the Rings and the Narnia Chronicle and thinking of how moved they are by these stories without realizing that these are gospel truths that are being spoken into their lives through the vehicle of myth and legend. In other words, what Lewis is saying is that religion presents to us a list of do's and don'ts that ends up numbing our spirits. But stories awaken our imagination and draw our hearts willingly, voluntarily to these same truths that we may push away when they're expressed to us in the form of a command. It's one thing to be told to trust in God. But how much more powerful is that impact of that truth when we see it displayed through the story of David and Goliath and watch this little shepherd boy take on this giant? So today, I want to talk about another story, the story about a friendship between two men, David and Jonathan. And I'm going to say it's one of the most improbable friendships that exists in the Bible. 
And the reason is because Jonathan is the son of Saul, the king. He is the crown prince of Israel, heir to the throne of his father. I mentioned last week how after David's victory over Goliath, his life would never be the same again. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6 to 7 reveals the truth of that. After he slays Goliath, it says, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the, woman sa- the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands... And David, his 10,000s. So overnight, David goes from being an unknown shepherd boy to a legend, a national hero. And with that fame would come the jealous hatred of Saul against David. In 1 Samuel 18, verses 8 to 9, it says, And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And with that jealous hatred came actual attempts on his life. Verses 10 through 11, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Story continues in verse 12 to 16. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So what's happening here is basically Saul throws David into the battlefield, hoping that in the course of battle, David would be killed as a soldier. But instead, his plan backfires on him because now he becomes even a more famous warrior. And all he experiences is victory when he goes out for battle. And so Saul hatches another plan. And he tells David this. I will give you my daughter, eldest daughter Merib, in marriage if you prove your valor as a soldier further. Again, he's just trying to get him into harm's way to see if he could get him killed. And so David hears that, and he's so naive. He says, oh, what a great honor, you know. I get to actually marry into the king's household. And he goes, I'll do it. And he goes out and he just conquers Philistines left and right. And then when it finally comes time for Saul to honor his pledge to David, he snubs him by, on that day, marrying Merab to another man. Verses 20 to 21. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And so hoping to get David killed once again, he does something that's utterly outrageous. He says, for the dowry of my daughter, I don't want any gold or anything else from you. What I want is the foreskin of a hundred Philistines. Absolutely gruesome bride price. And David hears it, and he says, I'll do it. (laughs) And so without knowing any better, he goes off to accomplish his mission. And verse 27 says this, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. For a third time, Saul will throw a spear at David, trying to pin him to the wall. And once again, David would dodge that spear. But this time he realizes, I don't know if I'm going to survive a fourth attempt like this. 
And so he hides in his home. And Saul finds out that David is hiding in his home. And he sends a detachment of his soldiers to go and kill David. But Michael discovers the plot on his life, and he lets David out through a window, and he escapes. And then what she does is interesting. She takes a household idol, and she puts it on the bed, lays it down, and then she takes some goat hair and puts it over the idol and then puts the blanket over there to try to make it look like David is sleeping there. And so these soldiers come in to basically kill David, and Michael, his wife, says, you can't take him. He's sick. Verse 14, and when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. So this is kind of the comical scene that unfolds, is that the soldiers go to kill David, and they're told he's sick, so they go home, back to the palace, or wherever. And so they basically tell Saul, we went to complete the mission that you gave us, but David is too sick to be killed right now. (laughs) That's what they basically tell the king. And so Saul cannot believe what he hears from his soldiers. And so in verse 15, it says this, Then Saul sent the messengers to seize David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. (laughs) Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, What do you mean he's too sick to be killed tonight? Drag him to me, bed and all, and I will do the job myself. And the soldiers, therefore, go back to the house of David, and it's there that they discover that they've been duped by his wife. Verse 16, it's, says, and when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Meanwhile, David is running for his life to the prophet Samuel. And listen, I know I put a bit of a humorous spin on this last assassination attempt on his life, but in all seriousness, you can imagine what incredible stress and discouragement David must have been feeling at that moment in his life. He is doing everything right and being punished every step of the way. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1, it says this. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? In other words, David is confused. This is not how his life is supposed to be playing out. After killing Goliath, he must have thought that it would be only a matter of time before he moves from being a national hero to actually being the king. After all, he was anointed to be the next king. But after that day that he kills Goliath, everything goes from bad to worse. In fact, there will be no less than six attempts on his life by Saul. He was anointed to be the next king, but I think at that moment of his life, David is thinking, I don't think I'm going to live long enough to ever see that day when I'll be crowned the king. Old Testament scholars tell us that Psalm 7 is most likely the psalm that David wrote during this moment of his life when he was on the run from Saul. And it helps us to understand what David must have been feeling inside. At the beginning of the psalm, we're told it's a shigion of David. And you're saying, well, what is that? A, sh- a, shigion, uh, a shig- shigion is basically a passionate poem written under a moment of wild and extreme emotions, okay? It is the picture of somebody that is flailing, panicked, almost going crazy with worry. And these are the words that he would write in this poem. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. 
the Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. This is the cry of David's heart. What is going on, God? What is happening to my life? It is unraveling before my very eyes, and everything that I once put my hope in is being dashed right in front of my eyes. As you keep moving through these next several chapters, things only get worse and worse for David. David is basically reduced to the existence of a wild animal that is being hunted for his life. And he doesn't know who to trust anymore. And we're going to, in the next couple messages, watch what happens to this guy as he becomes a fugitive in his own country, being pursued by Saul. But what is interesting is this, is in the midst of this dark chapter in David's life, in these pages, you find woven in and out over and over again these recurrent encounters that David would have with Jonathan. And I think the writer of 1 Samuel is trying to tell us something, trying to say to us that in the midst of David's darkest moments was this friendship of a man that saved him. It was like a lifeline that kept David going. In fact, it was as if that was all David had to grasp and cling to in this moment of his life. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 15 to 17. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. This period of his fugitive years is going to last a really long time. Most scholars think that David was probably anointed somewhere between the ages of 8 to 15. And we're told in 2 Samuel that David does not assume the throne until the age of 30. So this could very well be almost 20 years that David is on the run from Saul. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that without Jonathan in his life, David would have never made it through those difficult times. And this is going to be a large part of what I want to drive for the rest of this message is this, that just like David needed Jonathan, all of us need friends to help us make it through this life. Friendships are essential because we are not strong enough to face the challenges of our life on our own. I'm going to even go further than that to say that by God's design, we were created not to fly solo, but to walk with others who we need to help us. I think when we think about gifts that God gives us to help us in our time of need, we often think of things like prayer and scripture. But I'm going to argue that the community of friends is just as important as these, as expressions of God's care and love over us. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 to 14 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Do you hear what this, these verses are saying? It's saying that there's something about life that just has its way of working itself into our heart. This insinuation of sin that begins to harden us. There is a deceit, a lie, a deception of sin that begins to pull us away from God. And so the command here is, be there for one another. 
exhort each other, help each other out in this struggle to stay on that right path and keep following God. There are so many ways to go astray. And I think what these words are saying is that friendship becomes one of the most vital tools that God will use in your life to bring you back to him. And I think the truth is this. We have a lot of casual acquaintanceships in our life. Friends that you work out with together, friends that you go have play dates with your kids together, friends that you go shopping with, friends that you get together whenever there's a Bears game. But I want to ask you this this morning. Do you have friends like this? Do you have friends that are helping you in your faith and your walk with God to be able to stay connected with him and help you to avoid a hardened heart? I want to examine just a few things here about what this friendship is based on as we look at this relationship between David and Jonathan. And I want to begin first by saying this. True friendship is rooted in covenant commitment. True friendship is rooted in covenant commitment. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1 through 3. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. So this encounter happens right after David kills Goliath. And rather than feeling jealousy over it, Jonathan feels quite oppositely a deep love for David. And out of that love, he makes a covenant with David. Now, a covenant is a binding commitment to another person of loyalty. It's a promise. It's a message that you say to that person in this covenant, I'm telling you, I'm going to stick with you no matter what. And I'm going to argue this is, I think we talk a lot about covenant language when we talk about marriage, right? How marriage is a covenant. But I don't think we think like this when it comes to friendships. I don't think it's natural. I think truthfully, even as Christians, truthfully, I think quite often we think of friendship as much cheaper than that. I think truthfully when we think about many of our friendships, we think of them as rather disposable. When they've outlived their useful purpose, we discard them. And I'm going to guess that there's probably a long trail in your own life of friends, friendships that have been abandoned and no longer are meaningful to you. But when I look in Scripture, there is this strong covenant language used not only in regard to marriage, but also in regard to friendship as well. I don't think God views friendship as disposable. Proverbs 18, verse 24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And I want to ask you that this morning. Do you know friendships like that in your life? Is this the way that you would describe the friendships in your life? I've shared this on quite a few occasions, so it's no surprise to you to say that there has been a group of guys that I've been walking with since my teenage years. Go to the next slide there. I've known most of these guys since I was a teenager, some of them since I was in kindergarten. And now we're all entering our 50s together. This friendship has spanned decades. And at least once a year, we get together, all of us, to strengthen one another. And it doesn't matter where we are, we're going to find each other. And it's getting harder and harder because we're spread out all over the place. When we moved to Kenya as missionaries, they came to Kenya. So our friend Seth moved to Hong Kong. So we went to Hong Kong to encourage him and strengthen him. And I want to say this. This friendship to last decades has not been easy. It's been incredibly challenging because the truth is, over these decades, we've all changed. We've all sort of gone different paths. We all have different convictions. They don't all line up. And so I think, in all honesty, there were definitely moments in these friendships where we all had to sort of wrestle with that. Is it worth it? 
Is it worth keeping these relationships? Or should we just cut our losses and go our separate ways? But for whatever reason, we said no. We are covenanting with one another to finish this life together. And just in that commitment alone, there has been something so incredibly powerful about these friendships in my life. They have, they are like, well, one of them is my brother. (laughs) He's my brother. But (laughs) they have been like brothers to me who have been there in my darkest moments, in moments when I felt like I did not have the strength to stand up by my own two feet. They carried me and helped me. In times when I was kind of going in a wrong direction, there have been moments when they've called me out and brought me back to my senses. In a world that is filled with challenges and uncertainties, God uses our covenants to accomplish his will in our lives. Lewis Smeads wrote this. When you make a promise, you tie yourself to other persons by the unseen fibers of loyalty. When everything else tells them they can count on nothing, they count on you. When they do not have the faintest notion of what in the world is going on around them, they will know that you are going to be there with them. You have created a small sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability. You have made a promise that you intend to keep. And I'm going to argue to you that this is the picture of friendship that the Bible gives us, that we ought to experience in our relationships with one another. And so I want to ask you that this day. Do you have a friend like that in your life? Do you? Do you have a friend that you realize is going to be there by your side to the very last breath of your life? Will walk with you to the very end? I think so many of our friendships tend to revolve around our own agenda, our own, frankly, convenience. In other words, what I'm saying is this. I think we're very mercenary in the way we approach friendship. And what we're always asking is, well, What's in it for me? What do I get out of this relationship? And frankly, if it doesn't seem worth it, then we cut loose that friendship. In covenant friendships, we value others by seeing them as God sees them. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 4 to 5, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So Jonathan not only makes a covenant with David, but he takes off his own robe, as well as his armor and his weapons, and he gives it to David. Now, what Old Testament scholars tell us is that Jonathan's robe particularly represented his royal authority. It meant he was a crown prince. And so for Jonathan to take his own robe and give it to David was incredibly symbolic. What it was saying was, David, this day I surrender my rightful claim to the throne of my father, and I transfer it to you. You are now the rightful prince of Israel who will ascend the throne after my father. And this favor and kindness that Jonathan shows to David makes absolutely no sense at all. As the son of Saul, Jonathan is the second most powerful person in that country And David is a nobody, and yet in this story, Jonathan treats David with unbelievable respect and takes on the posture of the servant in this relationship. Not only that, but strictly from a human standpoint, Jonathan had everything to lose by being David's friend and had every right to see David as his enemy. As long as David lived, in other words, Jonathan's own claim to the throne would always be in jeopardy. This is the logic that Saul, his father, would use against Jonathan when he realizes that Jonathan has just helped David to escape his grasp. 
In 1 Samuel 20, verse 30 to 34, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? You can't actually fully translate what he's saying in the Hebrew because this is absolute vulgar language that Saul is using at this point. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, Neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Basically, Saul is saying, what kind of a fool are you? Don't you know that you're only hurting yourself when you help this guy out? Because he's your enemy. But when Jonathan would look at David, he didn't see an enemy. He saw a man that God had chosen as the next king of Israel. And he loved him for it and wanted to help him as a result of it. In other words, Jonathan surrenders himself to the will of God even though it is at his own loss, and he does whatever he can to help his friend. Eugene Peterson says something interesting. Each of us has contact with hundreds of people who never look beyond our surface appearance. We have dealings with hundreds of people who the moment they set eyes on us begin calculating what use we can be to them, what they can get out of us. We meet hundreds of people who take one look at us make a snap judgment, and then slot us into a category so that they won't have to deal with us as persons. They treat us as something less than we are. And if we're in constant association with them, we become less. I think we all know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of this truth, right? Don't you sort of walk through life feeling this way? Is that everyone, when you meet them, are trying to negotiate what worth you are to them. But I also want to argue that the flip side of that is true as well, is we do this to other people all the time too, don't we? This is just life as usual. As we kind of go through life and we assess people, say, what is this person worth to me? What would this relationship with this person benefit me? And I think what Eugene Peterson is getting at here is, That is not any kind of foundation on which a friendship, a covenant friendship, can be built. The starting place to being able to be this kind of giving, generous friend to another person is to have new eyes to see them as God sees them. Not how we benefit from that relationship. Not how we can use them for our own means. But realizing This is a person made in the image of God, loved by him. And what is my role in this person's life? To bless them and love them and help them. Well, lastly, I want to say this, is covenant friendship is rooted in covenant love. The term love is used throughout these narratives about Jonathan and David. So much so that there's this counter stream of people that try to make the argument that it was a sexual relationship. And I think anyone who understands ancient literature would strongly argue that there is absolutely no sexual overtone in this relationship. The term, though, love is very real in this story. Jonathan loses everything for the sake of this friendship with David. It's all liability. He will lose his future as the next king of Israel. He will lose the trust and respect of his father, Saul. He loses just about everything in this friendship. But what's interesting is, you know, the commitment of love actually goes both ways. It's not only David receiving from Jonathan, but David also gives that same love to Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 14 to 15, this, Jonathan says something really interesting to David. He says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off 
your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So, Saul, so, so Jonathan is saying, when you take the throne, I don't know if I'll still be around in the picture or not. If I am, be merciful to me. And then he says this, and if I'm not in the picture, would you show kindness to my house, meaning my descendants who would come after me? And what Jonathan is asking of David is actually quite a big ask because the tradition of kings in those ancient times was that when you assume the throne, you kill every rival that could contest your power. And that is well recorded not only in the Bible, but throughout history. Anyone who may have a legitimate claim to the throne, you assassinate, you murder, so that you alone stand as the rightful heir. And Jonathan says, please don't do that. Don't kill my children. Don't wipe them out. But that is a big ask because if any of Jonathan's descendants are still alive, they may one day seek revenge on David and seek his life. And we're going to see a few sermons from now how in an amazing and glorious way David is going to honor this request and show amazing love to Jonathan by what he will do with one of the descendants of the house of Saul. This word love is actually translated in the Hebrew, is, is, is said in the Hebrew is hesed, hesed. And it's speaking not only about this kindness and mercy shown to someone, but it's that love and kindness that is accompanied by loyalty and faithfulness. And so it's a really hard word to translate into the English, but it says, not only will I show goodness and kindness and mercy to you, but I will show it to you all the days of your life without condition, faithfully and committedly to you. And that is the love of friendship. That is the love that David and Jonathan experienced with one another. And what I want to argue is this. That is not a love that any of us are heroic enough to generate within ourselves. This has to come from God. You know, it's interesting that at this point in the David story, it's actually not David that is pointing to Christ, but Jonathan who points to Christ. Jonathan's friendship and love for David points ahead to Jesus' love and friendship given to us. Because just like Jonathan, Jesus was a king who gave up his throne for our sake. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Sounds a lot like Jonathan, doesn't it? Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And then Hebrews 13, 5 to 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the language of friendship, isn't it? It's the language of friendship that God is speaking into our lives. But Jesus surpasses the friendship of Jonathan, the love of Jonathan, in that he would give up his own life for our, for our friendship. John 15, verse 13 and 15 says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Let's pray. Um, I, I've done enough, uh, I think, pastoral counseling to, I think, recognize that I think for a lot of us, 
we would have to admit, I don't have a friend like that, like what you're describing today. Um, I can't really think of one person I could name that I could say is a covenant friend, that we have covenanted with one another to be there thick and thin through all the ups and downs when you're acting your worst. And maybe some of us are kind of looking at it going like, oh my goodness, like this is crazy. Isn't that supposed to be only for marriage? And I'm not saying that all your friendships ought to be at the same level as a marriage. It's, marriage is, there's something unique and special about marriage. But I am going to try to challenge you today to say that maybe your view of friendship is too weak. Maybe the truth is much of the relationships in your life would be better described as you're constantly assessing, what do I get out of this? What's in it for me? And maybe, truthfully, your life could be a catalog of broken friendships. People that at one time may have meant a lot to you, but there was a falling out, there was a misunderstanding, there were hurtful things done. Maybe out of that, you just cut your ties and you walked your separate ways. And I I think that's just the normal course of events, what naturally happens. But I'm going to argue that when we understand God's love for us, his friendship that he extends to us. He gives us the resources to experience that same kind of love and friendship with one another. And I want to argue that that is part of God's plan for every one of us here, is to not go through life cataloging one broken relationship after another, but experience the riches of his joy over us by the friendships that he wants to gift us with. And you know, sitting in the seat today, I think it's, it'd be very easy to hear a message like this and become very embittered by it and say, you know, this is, this is such garbage. Like, no one will do that for me. And I, I think it's easy to hear a message like this and just sort of spiral down into self-pity and say, yeah, it'd be great if someone would treat me like that once in my life. And can I challenge you that maybe what the real application of this message is, is um, how do I receive that love first from God and be so secure in that love that Christ offers me that I can begin to be that kind of a friend like Jonathan to somebody else? Rather than sitting and throwing a pity party for yourself and waiting for others to come to you, maybe the invitation of God is be that friend to somebody else, a covenant friend that would pursue them and love them unconditionally. And like I said, you cannot generate that love within your own heart just because you will it. It has to be something that God does in you to give you the love of Christ that enables you to love others in that way. And so could I just invite you to just pray for a couple minutes before God and just invite him to do that work in you and say, God, as I look at the depth of my heart, I recognize I don't have resources like that. I don't have those type of feelings toward other people. In fact, most of the feelings I, that tend to circulate in my mind, my heart, are pretty negative about other people. So give me your heart. Do that work first in me. Let's just pray that as our worship team comes to lead us in a time of response.